Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. So we've seen so far that Israel was a socialist state in its early years and retains some of those elements to this very day, though it's become a capitalist powerhouse by now, of course. And we've seen the changing status of Israel's Arabs in the early years. What about those Jews who came not from Europe, but from the Levant, from North Africa and elsewhere? That's the issue which we're going to turn to in the next segment. And following that, in the next segment as well, we'll talk about the intellectual life of the young Jewish state. Invariably, the ultra-Orthodox parties are necessary for making a coalition. It's almost mathematically impossible these days for either the left or the right, in most recent elections, blue and white or Likud, to make a coalition, by the way, blue and white is hardly left, but it was the opponent of the Likud, to make a coalition without the ultra-Orthodox parties. Now, why does that matter? That matters because the ultra-Orthodox parties don't have very many principles that they insist on for joining a coalition. They don't really care about negotiations with the Palestinians all that much. They have really two or three basic demands. Number one, that their boys should not get drafted to the army. Number two, that the country, the central government, should fund their schools and yeshivot. And that number three, Israel should not recognize officially any non-Orthodox forms of Judaism. And when American Jews, the vast majority of whom are not Orthodox, look at Israel and they see government after government after government not recognizing or doing enough to validate Reform Judaism, Reconstructionist Judaism, Conservative Judaism in Israel, American Jews scratch their heads and say, well, why is that? I mean, Israelis are mostly secular. What do they have against our varieties of Judaism? And the answer is really nothing. But the reality of how coalition politics goes is, they say, if I want the ultra-Orthodox parties to be part of my coalition, I have to give in on that. And then you might say, well, why don't you stand for something and say, if you're going to insist on that, then you're not going to join my coalition. Well, then they say, then the ultra-Orthodox parties will join the other side and make a coalition with them. Either way, the ultra-Orthodox parties are not going to give in on non-Orthodox varieties of Judaism. And so either I can make a deal with them or the other people will make a deal with them. But no matter what happens, Israelis are going to care most about security, 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 and then economics. And things like non-Orthodox varieties of Judaism, as important as it might be to many Israelis, simply are not going to sway the day when it comes to making Israeli coalitions. Uh, and that's where we find ourselves today, unfortunately. There are movements to try to change that. There are certainly Israelis who are secular and Israelis who are traditional but not Orthodox who feel very strongly that Israel needs to do more to recognize non-Orthodox forms of Judaism. But it's important for us to understand how did we get to where we are in 2020? 
that government after government, whether it's a left government or a right government, never seems to be able to move that agenda item forward. And it's because of the nature of Israeli coalition politics and the very, very powerful slice of the pie that the ultra-Orthodox community has. Let's talk very, very briefly about what happens in 1952 uh, with reparations. We all know that Israel is a country made up in large measure of survivors of the Holocaust, and even those who weren't survivors of the Holocaust understood that the Holocaust was simply the ultimate embodiment of anti-Semitism in Europe that had been going on for hundreds of years, and Israel is a very traumatized, poor country. It barely ekes by in the War of Independence between 1947 and 1949, and when the war is over, Israel is really destitute. There is food rationing. The population of Israel doubles in the first few years because 700,000 Jews from North Africa are essentially kicked out, and we'll talk about them more in a subsequent segment, and they come to Israel. Israel's having trouble feeding them. It's having trouble housing them. Israel is really desperate. In 1952, David Ben-Gurion, who is the prime minister, announces that he is going to get into negotiations with Germany, the head of which is Conrad Anno Andauer at this point, uh, who uh, says he's willing to negotiate with Israel, possibly giving reparations. Now, reparations, especially in German, is a very, very complicated word. The, the German word is Wiedergutmachung. Wieder means again, like Auf Wiedersehen, gut means good, and Machung is to make, so to make things good again. And when many Israelis in 1952 hear that David Ben-Gurion is a negotiate with Germany, and by the way, Israeli passports at that time said valid in every country except in Germany. It wasn't Germany that wouldn't recognize Israeli passports. Israel was unwilling to issue a passport that would be valid in Germany. That was the level, understandably, of the hatred towards Germany. So the idea that David Ben-Gurion would negotiate with Germany to get all these reparations was incredibly, incredibly controversial. And there were cartoons in newspapers showing the Germans reaching out an arm filled with a big bag of money, reaching it out towards a very hungry Israel. But in the valley, over, underneath this arm is a crematorium, is a concentration camp, are dead Jewish babies and so forth. There's this whole sense where Jews asked, how much are you getting for each Jew that they kill? What was the value of a Jewish baby? What's the price for a dead Jewish woman? It becomes an unbelievably bitter battle inside of Israel, and it's what brings Menachem Begin away from his political retirement back into the fore. People go to him and say, you are the person of all people who needs to lead the battle against these reparations because your mother was killed by the Nazis, your father was killed by the Nazis, your brother was killed by the Nazis, your wife's parents were killed by the Nazis, your wife's twin sister was killed by the Nazis. You owe it to your family to make sure that these reparations don't happen. And we're going to telescope this and condense it very quickly, but Begin does come out of retirement. He begins to give speeches in Tel Aviv. He puts on a kippah, taking a kind of a much more Jewish aura than he had before. Uh, there are people in the Tel Aviv rally who are holding Torah scrolls. It becomes a very Jewish thing about the Jewish soul of Israel. He goes to Jerusalem. He gives a very, very powerful speech in Zion Square in which he actually threatens David Ben-Gurion. And he says in the Altalena, I was the one who told my soldiers not to fire back at your soldiers. I was the one who said no to a civil war. But if I said then no, 
then today I am saying yes, in what was probably a sentence that he wished he could take back. He's eventually, because of very complicated reasons, suspended from the Knesset for three months, even after he's sworn in again. And eventually, Israel is going to take those reparations, and the Germans are going to pay over 14 years, 3 billion marks. Now, what, are the, what does the reparations do? The reparations basically enable this very poor country that didn't have cranes, so there were no tall buildings, that did not have big bulldozers, so you couldn't dig the kind of big trenches that you needed for the national water carrier. This enormous amount of money, which was given to Israel as the, so to speak, heirs of the dead Germans and dead people all across Europe who had no survivors. It was given to Israel in their name, and Israel uses it to build infrastructure, to build telecommunications infrastructure, to build roads, to build the national water carrier, and so forth. Amazingly enough, by the mid-1950s, Israel has the world's fastest growing economy. It's still not a rich country by any stretch of the imagination, but it goes from having to ration food, and by food I don't mean chicken and caviar and wine, I mean things like salt and flour and sugar and sardines. That's what's being rationed at the beginning of Israel. The rationing ends. Israel begins to have a little bit of breathing room economically, and as I said, by the 1950s is the world's fastest growing economy. What's the other reason that reparations is so unbelievably important here? It's because the battle between Menachem Begin and David Ben-Gurion returns. We saw the battle between Begin and Ben-Gurion during that whole period of the underground between 42 and 47, when Ben-Gurion's running the Haganah and Begin is running this illegal terrorist organization called the Irgun, called terrorists by others, of course. We see it happening in the Altalena incident in June 1948, where David Ben-Gurion believes that Menachem Begin is leading an insurrection, and others believe that Ben-Gurion actually has, tries to have Menachem Begin killed. Now we see it happening again in 1952 with the reparations, where Begin basically says that Ben-Gurion is selling the Jewish soul of the state of Israel, and that he, Menachem Begin, is the person who's going to ensure the survival of Israel's Jewish soul. And this is going to become increasingly important with the rise of Israel's Mizrahi population, which is much more traditional, North African, and we'll come back to them in the next episode. But the reparations are important not only because of what they do for Israel's economy, but because they spell the political revival of a man who will ultimately transform Israel. They spell the political revival of Menachem Begin, who in 1977 will become eventually Israel's sixth prime minister. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.